What a wonderful truth. Uh, blessed truth indeed. Jesus paid it all. Nothing left for those who believe in Jesus to pay. Nothing uh, left out. Nothing short. Nothing imperfect in that wonderful uh, salvation that the Lord Jesus has purchased for us. We turn back in our Bibles this evening to John chapter 19. And we're going to read uh, from uh, verse 28 through to verse 37. John 19, verse 28 uh, through to verse 37. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Just a moment of prayer as we turn to God's word. Father, help us as we deal with these solemn moments, as it were, in the story of the cross. We pray that uh, again you will open the eyes of our understanding, that we may receive light afresh this evening, that we may, in a, a fresh way, understand something of the wonder and the glory of the price that was paid for our salvation at Calvary. Be with us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Execution by crucifixion was by design one of the most excruciatingly painful deaths. Just take that word excruciating, for example, because that word in its Latin root has there the word for cross, crucem. It was indeed an excruciating death. It was often a, a slow death, on some occasions lasting several days. It was designed to intimidate, even to terrify potential wrongdoers, those who were criminals, if you like, 
in the eyes of the Roman authorities. When it came to the removal of the bodies, the removal of the remains, that was by permission of the Roman authorities only. And sometimes the bodies were left on display on the crosses for longer than was necessary as a very unsubtle threat to any who were contemplating crossing swords with the powers that be. It appears that it was customary for the legs of victims to be broken in order to hasten death when the authorities felt that the public displays had lasted long enough. John records here that after Jesus had uttered his final triumphant cry, it is finished, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke, the gospeler, records his actual words, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And so Jesus died. The manner of his death had a profound effect upon the on-duty centurion and some of his soldiers. Because particularly in Mark's gospel, we see this so clearly, when they saw how he died and what transpired, they were convinced that he was indeed the Son of God. This is what Mark says in chapter 15, verse 39. It's from the Amplified Bible. When the centurion who stood facing him saw him expire this way, he said, really, this man was God's son. Luke writes in chapter 23 and verse 47, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent or righteous. And similarly, Matthew records this in chapter 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And so in these moments, there was at work in the minds and in the hearts of those who previously had been perhaps unmoved by all of the events, there was a movement, we believe, of the Spirit of God, convincing them of the truth of Jesus. Now, what is tragically obvious is this, that whereas pagan soldiers, and indeed, Many in the crowd, according to Luke, who went away from the scene beating their breasts. That's what Luke tells us in chapter 23. That there were many in the crowd who went away beating their breasts. What, in shame? In guilt? In sorrow? After what they had witnessed. And whereas that was true of these soldiers who've been reading about and of many in the crowd, we find it very different amongst the Jewish leaders. They were not so moved. 
their blinded, self-righteous minds were fixed on other things. So I want to speak to you first of all tonight about hypocrisy highlighted. We're told here by John that the Sabbath was nearing. And it was a, a special Sabbath. It was a high day, John calls it, because, of course, it was part of the Passover feast which was taking place. And according to the Deuteronomic law, the body of someone hanged for crimes shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day to avoid defilement and desecration. This was especially urgent in the light of the special Sabbath which was coming up. And so the Jews come and they ask for the death process to be speeded up by the usual method of breaking the victim's legs. Now I put it to you that this is a, a picture of gross hypocrisy and false religion. Think about this. Those who had plotted and planned and used sordid and evil methods to kill an innocent man. Those who were in fact guilty of murder were now anxious and intent on attending to the niceties of their religious tradition and practice. They were guilty of despicable deceit, of dishonesty, of murder but now they wanted to make sure that they were dotting the I's and crossing the T's of their religious duty. Hypocrisy highlighted. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, hated and condemned hypocrisy. The only times that you hear Jesus speaking what we might describe as harsh words were to those who were hypocrites. God hates hypocrisy. Although, praise his name, he still extends mercy to hypocrites who seek him and his forgiveness. The word hypocrite means putting on a mask, putting on a false front, acting out a part, being preoccupied with external appearance and outward show to the detriment or the neglect, or even the contradiction of what is going on inside. It's interesting that it occurs, it, it pops up uh, in, in literature, and, uh, and some of our uh, great writers have, have picked up on this. For example, uh, we see it in Charles Dickens when he, he, he paints in multicolor the, the character of Uriah Heep. You know, the one who was always very humble, he talked about, and of course was anything but humble. He was uh, his unctuous and oft-repeated claim to be very humble hid falsehood in speech and behavior. Or interestingly, in, in Shakespeare, who puts it into the mouth of Queen Gertrude in, in the play Hamlet, thou dost protest too much, methinks. A little phrase used now to indicate doubt concerning someone's sincerity and honesty. See, people 
see hypocrisy. They're aware of hypocritical things that are done and said and carried on. And we have to confess that there's something of the hypocrite in all of us presenting on the outside what is not true of our inner condition. And it's something which we as believers, if we're honest, we wrestle with repeatedly. The need to be genuine, the need to be open before God, the need to be honest before fellow men. And we praise God for his mercy extended to us as we confess our falseness at times. But woe to those who continue to hide behind the facade. I want you not to forget this this evening, that those who were in the center of the spotlight here with respect to hypocrisy were religious leaders. Those who were the so-called pillars of society, those to whom the common people were called upon to look up to and to follow and to obey. These were people whose lips spoke of God, but whose hearts were far from him. I don't need to tell you that today in our society here in Northern Ireland, indeed in the Western world, we have so much which is merely show, a facade of religion. So much going through the motion, ticking the boxes, but hearts are far from God. Well, outward appearances may deceive men, but God sees the heart. There's something deeply disturbing about the words of Jesus recorded by Matthew, who falsely claimed to know him. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. And graciously this evening, I would want to underline this warning to those who are trusting in their religious associations, their religious ceremonies, their rites or their practices. You see, God isn't looking at the externals, at the outward appearance. God looks into the heart. God doesn't look at the mask. He looks for honest confession of sin, genuine sorrow and repentance, and the humble request for forgiveness and for the gift of new life in Jesus Christ. I want to, I want to ask you to search your heart this evening. As you listen, I, I want to speak to those who perhaps have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask you, you know, what are you trusting for salvation? How do you hope to be right with God? Because it is clear that mere external religion or indeed good deeds or a good show or a good track record, or whatever else, however else you might want to describe it, these things are in fact useless when it comes to the removal of sin and guilt and punishment. Oh, don't be deceived by the devil. I think it's such a sad picture here that in the presence of the Son of God dying for sinners, the religious leaders were consumed with hypocrisy. 
But I want to move you on to ask you to look at prophecy fulfilled. Because all of this was no accident. All of this was, did not take God by surprise, as it were. All of this was part and parcel of the way that Jesus had to take in order to forgive us. The falseness, the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders was all foreseen, and indeed it was overruled in the outworking of God's perfect plan of salvation. It was an integral part of God's revelation to men that his son's claims were genuine and true, but the religious leaders missed it all. John brings to our attention here two messianic prophecies. In verses 36 and 37, we read this. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, we've read the story together. The soldiers came. They were they broke the legs of the uh, thief on the left. They broke the legs of the thief on the other side. But when they came to Jesus, he was dead already. And they did not break his legs. What is the significance of that? Well, regulations for the Passover in the Old Testament included the stipulation that none of the legs, none of the bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. You can find that in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46. And indeed, it's a command that's repeated in Numbers 9 and 12. In the detailed prescriptions for the Passover meal, the, none of the bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. And the significance of that in this context in John is that John wants us to see that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. What the sum of sacrifices in the Old Testament, including all the Passover offerings, could not do, Jesus accomplished fully in himself. And that's why Paul could refer to Jesus as he writes to the Corinthians, as he could refer to Jesus as Christ, our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. And he enjoins, he exhorts the believers in Corinth to rejoice in the reality of what Jesus has done for us. So the non-breaking of Jesus' bones is part of a, the prophetic revelation of God to his people. Well, we come then to the thrusting of the spear into Jesus' side. Because we read here again that another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And this action has been variously interpreted and understood as, if you like, merely the last violent act of a, a Roman soldier um, simply uh, doing it on the spur of the moment. Or, as some would say, it was the insurance that Jesus was really dead. We don't know, um, but it's been understood in both of those ways. But however it is interpreted... John sees it as clearly fulfilling one of the most striking and significant prophecies 
of the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, and I would encourage you to turn to that passage of Scripture, if not now, later on, and look at it. Because it says something very strange and very wonderful that can only be understood in the context of the biblical revelation. Let me read to you how the Amplified Bible puts it. Uh, the Amplified Bible is, is, um, uh, was translated or was, was uh, designed to try to reflect as closely as possible the uh, meaning of the original languages. And so it will add words uh, of explanation here and there uh, in order to make sure that we get the, the exact meaning of the Hebrew or the Greek. And this is how the Amplified Bible translates Zechariah 12, verse 10. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Now, in some translations, uh, it simply says they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. But in the original Hebrew, this is what it says, and it's Yahweh who is speaking. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. That's an amazing statement. Yahweh is the speaker and we cannot escape the mysterious and the amazing truth that the one on the cross was truly God. Truly God. And only in the context of the mystery of the Trinity can this be understood. It is God himself who has redeemed us in the person of his Son at the price of himself. You know, one reflects on the awful events at Calvary on that day. The murder of the only good man. The only good man. The only truly good man. The God-man. The murder of that good man. And we see again in that the depth of the deceit and the depravity brought about by sin. Now, lest we become superior or harbor any degree of self-righteousness, let's remember that wonderful hymn of Stuart Townend, How Great the Father's Love for Me. And there's a line in it that says this, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffer. How could they put purity and innocence to death? How could they consign holiness to the shameful cross? How could they choose a criminal, Barabbas, and kill the Christ? The only explanation is the depth and the depravity of sin in the human heart. And that's the sin, dear friends, that grips your heart and my heart. That's the bondage in which we are by nature. 
That's how we are born into this world and how we live in this world outside of Jesus Christ. In the shackles of that depravity. And none of us know, apart from the grace of God, the depths to which we could stoop in order to serve sin. But how immeasurable, how immeasurable is the grace of God towards sinner. This is how great the Father's love was. This is how God so loved the world. The Apostle John records this detailed and this harrowing account uh, here in, in John 19 with a clear purpose in mind. He's not, out mere, he's not out merely to shock us. He's not out even merely to shame us. But he's wants to bring his readers to a point of decision. He wants to bring those who are reading or listening to this to a crossroads, to the greatest crossroads, the greatest fork, we might say, in the road of their lives. And so, as we finish this evening, I want to fix your eyes upon this. You could almost miss it as you read uh, through this passage. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. That you also may believe. There's a response demanded here. There is no neutral corner in the battle between God and evil. There is no fence for you to sit upon when it comes to, as it were, uh, judging or making your mind up about the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's purpose here is to bring men and women to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He actually states this. He actually states this uh, at the the end of the, the gospel again, uh, in, in uh, chapter 20, the very, the very bottom there, chapter 20, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose is evangelistic. He knows that this is the only message that can save men and women from hell. This is the only word that can rescue them from a lost eternity. And he's calling for a response from those who read and hear. This is not mere information. It's a gospel plea. It's a challenge. It's a cry for men and women not to look upon these awful events carelessly or idly or with apathy. Not to go away and shrug their shoulders as it were but so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You cannot, you dare not, stand idly by and look with self-righteousness or carelessness or even disdain upon the events of Calvary. Quite clearly, all of this is God's doing. It is the working out of his planned perfect redemption 
And men and women ignore or dismiss this at their eternal peril. I've got a question in my own mind as we come to a close this evening. And it's this. What was the real significance of those in the crowd departing from the cross, beating their breasts? What was the significance of that? Had they in some measure seen the deceit and the lies and the hypocrisy which brought all this about? Did they catch an inkling that what Jesus claimed for himself was indeed true? That he was truly a uniquely good man, but more than that, that he was the Son of God? Some Bible scholars raise the possibility that in those moments, perhaps in those hours, as those people went away ashamed and guilty and, 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 and beating their breasts, that God was preparing their hearts for that amazing spiritual movement on the day of Pentecost. When Christ was preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that among that 3,000 who turned to Jesus, and later on thousands more, that there were those who perhaps had been spectators, participants in that awful spectacle on Golgotha when Jesus died. Well, one would love to think that that was so. The Spirit of God moving graciously, tenderly, lovingly in the hearts of those who had stood by and watched as the Son of God had been vilified and shamed and crucified and killed as a, as a, a murderer, but murdered by those who were intent on his death. He died the death of a criminal, the kind of death that a murderer or a thief or a rebel against the Roman authorities would have died. He died as one, as a guilty wrongdoer died. But he died as the perfect Son of God, taking upon him sin that was not his, sin that was ours, guilt that was ours, punishment that was ours, and paying it in full. Aside from the fact or the question of those beating their breasts, what they did in the end, there's a more immediate question. How will you respond? You who have the benefit of the full picture, who can see the mercy and the grace of God in its overflowing richness and fullness, what will you do with Jesus? Who was nailed to that cross for one reason only, to take away eternally the sin, the guilt, and the punishment of all who would look to him 
and savingly trust him for forgiveness and new life. May the Lord bless his word this evening to the hearts of all who listen. May we see in these awful events something of the glorious light and life that God had planned for sinners and given to sinners, presented to sinners through the death of his son. We're going to pray briefly and then we're closing with a hymn this evening when peace like a river attendeth my way and the the chorus says it is well it is well with my soul. My question to you is it well with your soul? Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray this evening that in your mercy and grace you will take up these stumbling words, words that fall far short, Lord, of being able to describe or explain the, the depths of what took place on Golgotha on that day. Lord, we feel in and of ourselves unable not only to uh, describe it, but even to understand it fully in our own hearts. But Lord, by your grace, we believe it. And it is the only hope and anchor of our soul that there on that cross, Jesus paid it all for me. And so with the hymn writer we can say, it is well, it is well with my soul.